You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, we are kicking off a new month, so there will be a new theme to guess. But before we do that, I want to announce that the winner for May was Superfan RJ. Congratulations, RJ. You now get to pick two films for next year because you are a previous winner. Remember, if you want to participate in this contest, simply text or call your guests of the theme for the month to 971-245-4148 or email Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-I, at dodgemediaproductions.com and all of this will be found in the show notes. Throughout the month, you can guess the theme as many times as you want. Mike has made June very, very hard. So good luck, everybody. I just want to say the rules are on our website and you can see everything you get. And at the end of the year, for every correct guess, we will put your name in the hat to win a $100 Amazon gift card. All right, on to this week's episode. We watched Jurassic Park, which came out in 1993 on Apple for $3.99. So unfortunately, we could not find it on any streaming service for free. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. That name sounds familiar. Has he done other stuff? <laughs> a couple things. Okay. He did a, like a sweet little movie recently called The Fablemans about him, his his life and his gro- him growing up and becoming a filmmaker. Oh, a Jew. <laughs> um, the writer is Michael Crichton, who I actually have met. You have met Mr. Crichton. Yes. I mean, it was very brief. And oh, like six and a half foot of him. Wasn't he a tall bloke? <laughs> six, six, nine. Woo. Yeah. That's a tall drink of water. He, he was very tall and uh, he will never remember that we met. <laughs> Especially, I, I think he may not be with us, but. Um, oh, that's uh, true. If, <laughs> so I could say, oh no, we were buds and nobody would be the wiser. But Nobody since, could fact check you on that one. <laughs> right. But since I'm honest, I'll tell you. It stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, Bob Peck, Martin Ferrero, Ferro. How you say? Maybe we just leave him out. Um, (laughs) B.D. Wong, Joseph Mazzello, Ariana Richards. I'm getting deep in the woods, but... Yeah, there's some real big name that's like, this is one of their first movies that we saw them in. Sam Jackson. (gasps) That's it, Samuel L. Jackson. And Wayne Knight. Do you think he had enough of those dinos on that island? (laughs) Yeah, right? I can't believe he stepped foot... Maybe that's why he got on a plane instead of the island. Right. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> islands and dinos are bad. Maybe planes with snakes is better. Yeah. The DP on this was Dean Candy. He also did Apollo 13. Oh, good work. Mm-hmm. And the filming locations for this film are Hawaii and California. The synopsis, if you've been living under a rock, I will tell you, <laughs> but a pragmatic paleontologist touring an almost complete theme park on an island in Central America is tasked with protecting a couple of kids after a power failure causes the park's cloned dinosaurs to run loose. So when I first saw this film, I was less experienced in life and I totally didn't remember the premise, the setup of getting Sam Neill and Laura Dern there. It was just like, oh, they had these people at this park, dinos are trying to eat people. It was pretty straightforward. But watching it this time, 
the whole shtick about his bank was going to pull funding unless he got somebody to sign off on it. I was like, oh, I totally get that. Good work, Crichton. Because that actually is a believable setup why he would let strangers onto his island is because the bank was going to pull the money. That's about the only oh, thing that would get him to do that. I, oh, you're right. I, now that you say that, I remember them talking about it. But early on, it was, I thought it was just kind of Hammond wanted to be able to say, well, these experts right. approve it, but and, it was for do, the funding. And, yeah. And so it, it um, puts a time pressure. So it's good writing because it puts uh, that, that ticking clock and raises the stakes. So that's pretty well done. Very much so. And I believe that, I mean, Crichton was already trying to send a message. And I think even more so, he's like, see, it's all about the money. Like, yeah. the, like he, Hammond didn't want them to come and say, is this a good idea? Is this safe? Have we No, I just wanted a rubber keys? stamp. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it is uh, my belief that Jeff Goldblum's character, I don't know if you remember the name Malcolm, I think is the yes, name. Yes, yes, that is correct. I think that's basically Crichton's voice throughout yeah. this, because there's this line, which I really love and I have to sign off on, I agree with. He says, yeah, 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 but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Mm -hmm. And I think that's ultimately the message of the it book is. and the film. It very much is. I watched... I really wanted to understand because I remember reading the book back then. Oh, wow. And and then the person who knew Michael Crichton, who introduced me to him, also gave me some backstory, too. But I really wanted to kind of hear some interviews with him personally and just to get to know you know him better. And he very much said that he feels like science I mean, I couldn't have said it better than you, but basically science is moving faster than our wisdom to know if we should be doing these things. Right. Uh, and I, I think that could have served as a great pickup line in the film and sadly comes later in act one. Oh yes. You're a hundred percent right. Yeah. But I do out of context. I, I, yeah, see I don't know how they would have got there, but man, that would really make my point. <laughs> it really, really would. No, it very much would. Okay. I have many taglines. I'm sure it's all marketing. Do you want to hear them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven taglines. They were busy. Yeah. Okay. Life finds a way. That's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Welcome to dot, dot, dot. That's horrible. Yeah, that is. That could be any movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Wong Fu Thanks a Million. Like, okay. Unleash the beasts. Yeah. We don't want to. That could have been Days of Thunder. <laughs> right. We need a new one. Caution. Alive inside. Oof, That's no. a sticker on a... No, no. The park is open. Oh, it could be a Disney movie. Right. <laughs> Set in Disneyland. An adventure 65 million years in the making. A little bit better. Okay. The problem with that one, as I hear it right today, is I think 65 million years was that Adam Driver time travel science fiction dino movie. <laughs> so... Um, Life Finds a Way is my favorite. Okay. But to be clear, that is an iconic line from the movie. I think that is the most recognizable line from the movie. So having already seen the film, maybe it wouldn't have made much sense when I hadn't seen the film. Mm -hmm. Just trying to be fair. All right. And here's the last one. And okay, these are one. in no particular, these are in order as they appear on IMDb. Right. So I did not save yeah. the best for last. So I can't Basically promise. arbitrary. Okay. 
but it's the longest. Okay. The most phenomenal discovery of our time becomes the greatest adventure of all time. <laughs> okay. Some kind of marketing thought that up. No. <laughs> life finds a way. Done. Life, yeah. I agree. I agree. That's the winner. Okay. Kick us off with your pickup line. So this one was actually difficult. There was a lot of mumbled, and I went back and used the captions, and the first recognizable line I get off screen is, keep it there, which kind of works. Right. They're they're unloading. It's, it's when we first... It's one of the dinos. We're introduced, but not... We know they're unloading something major. We know they're unloading a live creature of some kind. We're we're yeah. sitting in a film called Jurassic Park with a picture of a dinosaur, so we know. But it was very interesting because we didn't see hardly anything of the dino at all. We did see at one point an extreme close-up of an eye, mm-hmm. and that was it for that first dino, right? which is fascinating because dinos look realistic and are present in the rest of the film. So they obviously could have put a dino there, but Spielberg made the decision to keep it off screen. And I love it. I think that worked well. Yeah, I agree. So little bit of trivia about the cinematography. So Dean Candy and Steven Spielberg worked together on Hook. Oh, because Hook was not the most successful. No, in fact, they were over budget and they were late. Oh, yeah. And Universal, who also... This this movie is f- through Universal. They were very nervous and said they they didn't want to really hand over sixty three million dollars to these two to do what they did on Hook. You know, so they said you absolutely have to come in on budget and be on time. So they had many 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 production meetings, and Dean felt very confident because he worked on Roger Rabbit, so he knew. How to film an actor while they're pretending that something is there. They were to the ILM and the people there and Steven says, okay, how are you going to do this? Dino? They At first they were going to do it all stop motion. Right. And then they said, no, let me, let me show you something. So they showed it to him and it was a running dinosaur, but it was just the skeleton. And he's like, okay, great. Except for I need it to look like a real dinosaur. So the guy goes, I'll be back in a week. And then he brought it back and it looked a little bit more like it almost had like the muscles, let's say. And Stephen was like, okay, that's great, but I need it to have skin. And so he goes, I'll be, I'll be back in a week. And he came back and he showed him what like previs of what we see today. Mm-hmm. It even wasn't as good as what we sure. saw because they were able to perfect it. And they came in under budget and 12 days under schedule and spoiler for our numbers segment, it made $1 billion. They got their money back. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of the rendering, I, I will mention that a Silicon Graphics workstation is used as a prop in the film. And in that era, that was probably what they're using to do rendering of the dinos. And that leads to the segue that even though it was 1993, there is absolutely no excuse for the hideous inaccuracy of all software depicted in the movie. Not even remotely close. It was written by somebody who had never even been in the same room as someone who knows something about software. So you paused it once and was reading the code, and that's what you're speaking to right now? That was actually not so bad, but uh, they just threw some terms out there that made no sense, and then there is this weird, very badly animated three-dimensional model 
of an operating system, none. So they nailed the dinosaurs, but fell short um, oh, yeah. in the computer. Total faceplant on the computing <laughs> side. Um, I mean, it's okay. It doesn't ruin the film, but it, like I said, anybody with any knowledge is just, ah, oh, it takes you out of the movie. It's so bad. So I made a note here at the very beginning. So they go and get Grant and yeah. Ellie. They go get them and they bring them to Jurassic Park. And they show and they bring them in and they're going to feed a velociraptor. So we have the scene at the very beginning where we don't really see the dinosaur <laughs> until it kills right. somebody. Right. And then we see Dr. Grant and Ellie viewing this feeding and what I thought was really well done, even though they're going to go to great pains to show us the dinosaurs later and how realistic right. they look. Yeah. We see their faces and there's their faces yeah. are in the background. There's foliage in the uh-huh. foreground and they're reacting uh-huh. to seeing this velociraptor eat a cow. So this is the business of show. This is why in addition to making award-winning films, Spielberg gets to keep making films because this was brilliant because he found a way to not have to pay to animate a dinosaur and it still worked. Oh, right? totally. Just like that opening scene. These two scenes, he saved tons of money and time by not having an animate. They just had grips down there shaking the palm fronds, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Brilliant filmmaking from like a, a production standpoint that was because the story, it actually, I think, is more, it builds more tension than if we had seen the dinosaur. Yep. Because all in act one, no dinos. It's only things rattling. And then also in that scene, this makes no sense logically, but they have like some, lower it down in this like a belly strap thing only just so that they can raise it up and the ends are like frayed, Right. That's what that was for. You would you would just you just throw the cow you'd in, tip it in, <laughs> right? It's about to be eaten. There's there's no you don't have to give it a dance, but that served to 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 show that. So we we as a viewer are like, holy cow, this What's thing is happen? is must be powerful if it shredded these cables. Yeah, like like high five to Steven Spielberg on that one because it's the double whammy. It, it, I think it makes more tension and it saves him a ton of budget. What a brilliant idea. Yeah. Now this, this is a good one. I remember this one. when it. So since up. we were talking a little bit about CGI, yeah, one of the questions talk. that we, um, that I raised before we watched this was would the CGI hold up? And I was amazed at how well it held up. And it's like, okay, this is why I made a billion dollars because in 93, mm-hmm. This is 30 years ago, mm-hmm. this film. And those graphics are still like, oh, yeah. They're so good. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty stunning. For all the crap we've done since as an industry, yeah. that, that, that still looks that good. No, it's very, very, very realistic. And it's a combination of there are some computer graphics, but like right. I, I watched an interview with the kids on the Today Show and- the fear in their eyes when they're in the car and the T-Rex busts through uh-huh. and there's only a piece of plastic between them. And that's real because the T- T-Rex was animatronic. There's a machine basically that looks to these kids like a, a you know, a T-Rex with large teeth and it's coming down towards them. Right. It's a machine that's going to fall on them. Yes. Yeah. And so they said it was pretty in- <laughs> I intense. I bet. Pretty intense. And yeah. 
at one point, I think when it breaks the plexiglass, like that wasn't supposed to happen or something. But it, at one point, the kid got hit on the head on accident. It wasn't supposed to happen. Like they right. they took safety very, very seriously. They talked about it. They had many safety meetings and everybody was aware and you had to watch out for the tail. And, you know, I mean, they, it was an accident and it, the kid was pretty he, you know, lighthearted about it. So I don't think he was terribly. He did mention it was on my birthday, too. I can't even imagine being those kids in that car looking up at what they were looking up at. And again, I want to bring up to everyone, including the cast and crew, Jurassic Park didn't exist yet. This was the first yeah. time this was just probably mind blowing mm -hmm. to the people on set, mm -hmm. just like it was to us in the theater. Mm -hmm. And it, it is rare, in my opinion, that older movies hold up, especially special effects films. Mm -hmm. I was stunned mm -hmm. at how well this played 30 years later. So again, huge credit to Spielberg and Candy mm -hmm. at, at how they shot this because they did use, you could tell like from a filmic perspective, it wasn't all CGI. And I was thinking of the scene where the dinos are like running from the T-Rex and some of the characters have to like run and then hide on the other side of a log. And that was so brilliant because you have the tension, the audience, but then it's an excuse to be close up. So then you can, the actors can act and we can see their face, but we don't have to necessarily see a lot of dino. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be animatronic even. Mm -hmm. So it's like the fact that... Because I believe those were CG, the they, ones you're they talking were, about. They were, but then they used the sound, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The rumbling, so sound design. Mm -hmm. And the filmmakers, like that was kind of a masterclass in how you could seamlessly interleave those different parts of movie making to make it feel so freaking realistic. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I was, I'll be honest, I went into it thinking, oh, this could look kind of dated. And nope, if I mm -hmm. think if that came out today, it would play perfectly fine. Yeah, I was trying to think. I don't think we saw this together because I think it was. No, I actually saw this with. Uh, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, maybe of, of 93. Three? With uh, with my buddy who likes to take his clothes off. <laughs> and he didn't take his clothes off during the film, though. But. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think this was just before we met. But I remember seeing this one in the theater. I mean, this was oh, yeah. one of those epic films. Oh. I mean, it's Steven, so, you so, know, why would we think otherwise? Jaws, E.T. We stood in line out of doors yeah, yeah, yeah. in Southern California in the blistering heat to go see this film. Yeah. No, this this, this was, was a big deal. Big, hairy deal. All right. Anything else in cinematography before I move to the writing? <sighs> okay. So cinematography, a lot of extreme close-ups in the opening scene, as I mentioned, which I like, as I'm now sensitized to uh, Fog Machine when Hammond <laughs> first meets Grant and Ellie, although I'm going to say I'm not really sure why they were that dusty. I mean, they were. Really, well, they, really dusty. They had just come off a dig. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the helicopter stirred up a ton of dust. <laughs> yeah, that must have been it. And, um, I, I really liked how when Hammond was showing them the like cheesy short film, educational <gasps> film, how they had Sam Neill blocked where he stood up. So the projector was the halo lighting. I thought that was oh. that was a clever, clever trick there. And then several times, the DP put the characters in silhouette. The DP found clever ways to put the characters in silhouette, which I, I really thought that was nice. 
his different techniques. And it was a variety of really wide shots when they wanted to establish the vista and extreme close-ups. So it was really well done. Mm-hmm. So credit to him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, we're just going to keep gushing. Underwriting, I think it's funny because you were talking about Malcolm being the voice of Crichton. Uh, yeah. And I have Malcolm flirts with Ellie. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I think Crichton liked, <laughs> I mean, provided he wrote this before. And I'm sure, right. I'm sure in the book, and I wrote also Crichton is speaking through Malcolm. I liked the line, item 151 on today's glitch list. Yes. Which tells us this park is not ready to open. <laughs> right. We have not, a lot of bugs yeah. we need to work out. And then I like the line from Malcolm just kind of playing to his arrogance. Boy, right. I hate being right all the time. <laughs> I might also have been the author. <laughs> right. I And then we both discussed the uh, shirtless Malcolm <laughs> that was unnecessary. And I saw and I watched an interview with Goldblum and he said, yeah, I didn't really understand why I was supposed to be shirtless in that scene, but I didn't mind. <laughs> I would have normally push back on that to say that mathematicians are rarely shirtless, but I, I have to uh, you know eat a bit of humble pie after seeing a beautiful mind. It really bumped me that Russell Crowe was so jacked playing Nash, who's a mathematician, until I saw photos of Nash. And apparently he was just, he didn't work out. He was just naturally a pretty jacked. ripped guy. Yeah. So I was like, okay. Um, so maybe, maybe uh, Malcolm was one of those as well. But I have to say, um, I don't know if Crichton had any casting authority or right, participation, but I uh, I was surprised at how well I think Laura Dern kind of holds her character in this film. I mean, obviously she's known to be an attractive actress, right? But she was able to bring to it, I thought, kind of an earthiness where it felt like this person actually like worked out of doors all of the time. I remember her as just being pretty, mm-hmm. but I think she had more of a, I think, an appealing kind of girl next door character than necessarily just the Hollywood leading lady love interest kind of vibe. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised that her role was, was a little different than I remembered. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I liked her character because she wasn't just like kind of the dame thrown in right. so that we... I felt like early on, you know, she was kind of, she was the one aware. Sam Neill was very much his character. Dr. Grant was the one who's just in the weeds. Like his head is down in the dirt, literally. Yeah. And she's the one who kind of sees, like she's taking care of everyone else on the dig and everything. And then once we get to the park, but even then she gets a little kind of down in it because quite literally (laughs) when she's taking care of the triceratops i believe (laughs) i don't know i I really liked how they didn't make her just the dumb dame yeah and she was very uh, smart in her way uh, like you said in my memory i think because she's so pretty i remembered her as being more of a dumb dame but the 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 scene that sticks out in my mind is so not that is she has a scene with hammond at like a dinner table, everything is going horribly wrong. And he's like in the, in the cafeteria area and they'd had the big spread and he's eating ice cream or something. And she sits down and he says something stupid. And just her, her whole reaction was like, yeah, she was uh, Sam Neill's character of Grant. He was, like you said, he was the typical boffin. He was all about the knowledge, the IQ, the trivia and all that stuff. And she was like, maybe with Goldblum, but she was like the one, dialed in character 
of all the main characters, right? Even Goldblum's character is a little, little crazy. I was honestly surprised watching it the second time, thinking, why isn't Grant objecting? Because he knows these animals as best as anybody on the planet, we're told. Like, Dr. Grant right. is the premier expert on dinosaurs. I was surprised that his character didn't sooner kind of go like, wait, you shouldn't have done this. This shouldn't have, you know, or how did he not even hear about it? Because to have bred that many different species. So to to me, this is a little bit like if you are one of the world's foremost experts on big cats and somebody says, hey, would you like to come over for charcuterie? And you show up for your charcuterie and there are six adult tigers in the backyard you would lose your mind, right? Like, right. no, these are giant apex predators right. that will eat us immediately. But there's this character who, by the way, from the, the uh, costuming, has some really short cargo shorts. But they've got this guy, Muldoon, who's the Australian hunter guy. And he immediately is kind of like, yeah, these are big-time predators. We should not mess with these things. So... That I think is a valid question. Why would Grant not be able to do that? Because almost anybody with half a brain would. And I think of all the the guys with no names or credits that are helping Muldoon with those dinos are they would also for their own self preservation just be like, dude, this thing is the size of a rhino. Mm-hmm. And it's got fangs. Like mm-hmm. we should not be doing this. Right. So we digress a bit. We did. I liked, and maybe this is kind of i don't want to say a trope but a technique in action movies the maladies that these people were facing were growing in intensity like first it started raining and then things like the system was offline and now cars are getting ruined oh now people are dying like it just kind of kept intensifying Uh the what these the stakes kept car- getting raised. Yeah, yeah. And what I liked about that, about the <clears throat> writing, so pro- maybe in the original book, but also in the screenplay, is it, it started out believable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that bothers me is when they start so high that then it just gets like ridiculous. Yeah. Like, oh, an alien's come. Right. But it was like, first it was just like, oh, we've got a couple glitches. Like you said, 151 on the report. <laughs> And, you know, just it, it, it starts just kind of like, OK, you know, we can get past this. And then, yeah, like you said, rain, it starts raining and you're like, well, it's no big deal. OK, there's a little bit of rain. Like it, they they really paced the raising of the stakes very well. And I forgot this from watching it the first time. And I want to know if this was in the book or this feels like a Steven Spielberg thing. But Sam Neill's character, Dr. Grant, and the boy are in the tree. And there's a car that is high up in the tree. Well, yeah, the it's going to fall. The boy was in the car. And so Dr. Grant comes down he and gets, gets the him. boy out. And now they're trying to climb down the tree. But the car starts basically chasing them. Yeah. And so now here's once again another obstacle that they have to overcome is to get, how are they going to get away from this car? And it just, the tension in that scene, because they scramble down a bit and then the car comes right. plunging like six or eight feet, just narrowly stopping before it gets to them. I mean, it was just even... But see, I like that because it's it's a fresh take on a chase scene. Exactly. That's what I, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. 
So cleverly done. Yeah. When she, was it her? I think she, yeah, she had to run down to that second location and she had to charge up the line. It reminded me of a, de- a bomb detonation scene <laughs> yeah, yeah. because it was like the tension and will she get it right? And yeah. this button and, and this button. And, and yeah, yeah. 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 Good. Um, yeah. Good tension there. Okay. Anything else in writing that you made note of? The one thing which is probably uh, on purpose is there. Well, I'm going to say two things, but the one is that Hammond is remarkably blind to the dinos. And we see that in a couple of different places. So one of them is that you have dinos that spit poison, but the windows go down on the explorers. <laughs> and the other is his, he's more worried about his kids touching the cars than being eaten by dinos, his grandkids. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he obviously has a, a blind spot for it. But one thing that, and this could be the filmmakers, this could have maybe not been Crichton, but this, I, I, I feel duty bound to bring this up. CPR never, ever restarts a stopped heart, ever. All it does is try to keep the blood flowing until somebody who knows what they're doing shows up. And we didn't even have, what are they called? The the um, automatic defibrillators. Yeah, they, they didn't have those in 93. They didn't. So that was a dangerous factual error, in my opinion. Movies shouldn't show that. It's not accurate. I, it's interesting you bring up Hammond. And he definitely was not the mustache twirling, I'm only in this for the money. At least I didn't get that. No, no. I think I got, he wanted to maybe do something that has never been done. He wanted to. Okay. This is the same douche nozzle that came up with self-driving cars. The same mindset of, oh, I think we could maybe do this. Well, it's going to kill people. Yeah, but it's cool technology. This is happening right now all over again, right? People, that's why I love that line. Just. You're focused more on whether you could than whether you should. Right. That's true. But I kind of, the way that at least Richard Attenborough portrays him or that was in the script, it seems like he's just like this, like a Walt Disney, right? He's like this sweet grandfather character that just wants his grandchildren to experience dinosaurs. Like, but I see, I hear what you're saying. And I do think that, Maybe his own ego is a little bit too wrapped up into it because he wants to be the one well, to do it. That's why I was saying he, he's obviously blind to the consequences yeah. of what he's doing. And I think it's the same thing with the people who promote self-driving cars. They get so obsessed with, again, can we do it? They, they forget about, should we do it? Right. Yep. All right. I don't have anything for editing because, I mean, I think the whole thing is just master, masterfully edited. But I do have a couple things under sets and sound. How about you? Yeah, regarding sets, the one note I have is I said it was very convenient that all of the dino DNA vials were so clearly labeled. <laughs> well, you don't want to get it mixed up. You don't want to end up with like a brocky a triceratops. Right. Yeah, but what I liked about it was I would have expected it to be like Dilophosaurus, Batch 14, Vial 7, blah, blah. It was just in big letters, Dilophosaurus. (laughs) I thought it was a little too on the nose that Wayne Knight's character, Nedry, Nedry was his last name. Okay. That his desk was just like messy and full of. Right. Soda cans and trash and candy wrappers and. I, I actually, I think that's 
part of the written by somebody who had never interacted with a software development team. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, So are you saying the desks were messy or they were tidy? No, they weren't. They weren't that messy. Your messiest guy wouldn't have been that. I mean, that was ridiculous. I mean, there's trash on the floor. No one would, would, would put up with that. Okay. I, whoever did the sound design on the dinosaurs, they, they sounded almost, you know, they were like alien mixed with like elephants mixed with car sounds. Cause we don't really know what they would sound like. We don't. And in fact, uh, to, to be nerdy, uh, some people have questioned what color they would be, right? Some people say they would be, you know, typical like uh, brown camo colors and other people say no, they would be bright colors. We, we don't know because all we have are the bones and sometimes some impressions. And, oh. and so they, they've tried to reconstruct what they think the musculature would be like and how they would move. But for a long time, for example, they thought that T-Rexes would be standing up more, but now the thinking is that the tail is a counterbalance, so they'd be more horizontal. But we just don't know, right? But, I mean, we went to the zoo, I don't know, in the last year. And when you look at an elephant or like a hippopotamus, you kind of do feel like you're looking at... Right. A, a, a t- you know, like, oh, I get it. Like One of the interesting things I didn't think about um, until I watched it this time and it just came up again, too, is... I had read an article that they think that there was more oxygen in the air at that time. So the plants were different. There was more plant or something. So when you think about how big a T-Rex is compared to, like you said, an elephant, I don't know if they could get enough food or would their lungs, would it be like they're always in Denver? You know, they'd be wheezing. They couldn't, couldn't get enough to breathe. But it is kind of interesting to think of, yeah, or like a, a giant saltwater croc yeah. looks a lot like a dinosaur. Yeah, it's cool. Okay, it gets it gets all of a sudden. I didn't even think I was a dinosaur person. Any head trauma in this film? There is one instance of head trauma. Gennaro, Gennaro, he's the attorney that seems to exist only for exposition. He hits his head on the lumber cross piece in the mine at 445. Pretty standard gag, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the head trauma. That's it. Okay. Did we get a Dr. Grant and Ellie kiss? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. I didn't make note of any smoochie between them. Because they were clearly a couple. Early on, they even, like, she even puts her hand on him in a way that it's clear right. that they're a couple. And right. then she lets it be known early in the film that she wants children and he has no interest. But then... She observes, I very much feel like it's a a female gaze as she observes him being paternal towards the children. And she, I think, kind of gets like a. (gasps) Yeah, I I did. I did note that. And she did. This was a little bit, I think, 50s era where she kind of tricks him into being alone with the kids in the car. And that's very much like, oh, well, he just needs to be exposed to children and then he'll love them. But yeah, this kind of segued a little bit into my department of couldn't be made today because as I mentioned out loud when we watched it, in kind of the first scene where we see Grant and Ellie, he appears to grab a good old handful of ass when she walks by. And then later he grabs her by the head and twists her head for her to look at a thing instead of just pointing like a normal person. And furthermore, Malcolm, played by Goldblum, 
is pretty handsy. And so there is some uncomfort that this, I didn't feel like they, that, that Ellie's character and then maybe for 93 archeologists would tell you that was, that was standard for the, but it made me a little nervous watching it this time. <laughs> we know we have those two, what were they like Jeep Cherokees or whatever, but do we have a driving review? We do have a little bit of a driving review. So <laughs> most of the cars were Ford Explorers. Fair enough. They were a very common vehicle at the time. And then there were also some Jeeps again. Fair enough. I, I did mention why would the windows ever go down if you had dinos that spit poison? That seems to me not particularly bright. They were supposedly on this track, and very few people other than me maybe paid attention, but there didn't appear to be anything between the vehicle and the track. Like, normally you would expect there to be, like, a post or something. Yes. There wasn't. So I don't know how that was supposed to work. They didn't uh, uh, consult the folks at Autopia. <laughs> they didn't. And then the last little bit that I noticed is Dennis or Nedry or whatever, um, Wayne Knight's character, horrible driver. <laughs> and uh, he, he he gets the uh, Ambition Exceeded Adhesion Award. He ran out of ideas halfway through turn six. So it's kind of his own dang fault. <laughs> he was the, I don't know, the buffoon of the whole. He really was. And you know, it's interesting. I, I remember that character having a bigger part than than he did. Well, his, but his, he was very vital, you know. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of number of minutes on screen. And yeah. here's the thing. I remembered him as being the one in the kitchen with the velociraptors, not the kids. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yeah. So. All right. So we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. Like I said, this came out in 1993 with a budget of $63 million, and I already spoiled it. Domestically, it made $402.5 million. Today, that would be like... million and worldwide is where they got they uh, got it over the to be a b and uh, they made 1.45 million which is 16.6 times the initial budget and one would hope that steven got a few points on that i bet he's doing okay because of this film well it went on to have some sequels so (laughs) wouldn't it be great if he has like still the jurassic park lunchbox right yeah this one, let's see, its IMDb score is 8.2 out of 10. Critics give it 91% and audiences agree. They give it 91% too. And I mean, it's definitely an A movie. It's, it's. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, it's like a classic. If I top 100, right? This is it's, amazing. It's just over two hours, which I don't think you really feel it. I didn't notice that. Yeah, two no. hours, seven minutes. It's rated PG 13. It's labeled as a action adventure sci fi movie. And as I said before, it's a Universal Pictures Amblin Entertainment. It won the Academy Award for Best Sound, Best Effects, Sound Editing, Visual Effects. It won a BAFTA for Best Sound and Best Special Effects. And it won a People's Choice Award for the a favorite motion picture of that year. So, I mean, p- audiences were, you know, very pleased with this film. So am I. <laughs> Not sad to watch it again, huh? No, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, it was good. All right, everybody, that kicks us off for June. So this is your first clue. Next week, we will be watching Uncle Buck and talking about that film. So let me know what you think our theme is for this month. And I will just alert you that when Mike came up with this, I went, this one's going to be a hard one. 
Yeah, I will say I will be surprised if someone gets it, even our super fans. Yes. But you surprised me, though, so it's possible. So send us your guesses for what it could be and join us next week for Uncle Buck. But never forget, Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 